to invite everyone in the sanctuary to grab your Bible this morning and turn with me over to the book of Romans chapter 2. If you'll find your place there, Romans chapter 2, we all want to have the Word of God open before our hearts. You know, we only have about nine more attributes that we're going to cover. Then we'll cover a couple of names of God and then we'll stop and ask some questions of ourselves as we finish up this study this year and and then look forward to a new year, walking through the doctrine that conforms to godliness, what it means to be like God, the God that we've studied all year. But we're in Romans chapter 2. I'm going to be in verses 11 through 15, uh, I'm sorry, 11 through 16 in a moment. And so as you're turning there, we're going to learn today, hear God speak and tell us about the truth that God is an impartial God. There is impartiality in his nature, in his essence, which is frankly difficult to understand sometimes, the way we live in, the world we live in. I don't know if you knew this, but uh, I thought in America when we said the Pledge of Allegiance, at least I think we still say that, hopefully, right, uh, that justice was for all. Justice is supposed to be impartial in our land, amen? But see, American lady, the American justice lady, the, the lady justice we call her, when you see her, she usually wears a blindfold, right, to help us to see and understand justice is impartial. But the reality is today, it seems that she's wearing an eye patch, right? There seems to be those that are getting away uh, because with, with crimes because the courts don't seem to be impartial anymore. One man can even record his crimes on a laptop and not face prosecution. And one man can stand as President of the United States and, and just use his First Amendment rights and question the legitimacy of an election, and he gets arraigned in court with 19 others, right? Something's wrong in our system, and it looks like there's impartiality in our justice system. Well, the amazing thing is, justice may not always prevail in court. Sometimes the guilty prevails. Sometimes the innocent is, is, it goes to jail. Uh, even in sporting events, we see impartiality. I mean, sometimes an official, he doesn't always get the call right. And all the Wolfpack fans know that as we play Carolina, right? And we won't even talk about the Dukies, okay? But anyways, God, in contrast, is never impartial. God never gets it wrong. God doesn't show partiality. He doesn't show favoritism. Sometimes we conflate those two ideas together. To show partiality means that we have an unfair bias towards a person or a group of people. We, 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 we're inclined to their uh, way. To show favoritism is to give preferential treatment to a person or a group, often at the expense of others. One is an inclination of the heart. One is the actual, one is actually doing something. And the amazing thing is God does neither. God is not partial and God doesn't show favoritism. In fact, God is good to all. The psalmist says that over in Psalm 145.9. That God is good to all and his compassions, his compassions reach everyone. If God is good to all, then he's not showing favoritism, Right? If God is good to all and, and, and extending blessings to mankind, then no one can say God is impartial. In fact, you and I, I we don't like the word favoritism, unless perhaps we're the favored one. Did you know I have one favorite daughter? Now, I don't want that to go to the head of the brethren, okay? There's only one daughter in the family, okay? But you don't like favoritism, whether it's in school whether it's on the ball team, whether it's at work, someone gets passed over, right? 
in a promotion. Well, you know, they showed favoritism to him. We, we all experience it in life. Here's the amazing thing. With our God, you never experience that. He is impartial. He doesn't show favoritism. In fact, the Bible teaches God is impartial to all. But someone will say, well, wait a second, time out. What about the Israelites? They're God's chosen people, right? Is he showing favoritism to them? What about old Noah? Huh. I mean, God's going to destroy the whole earth, and Noah and his family, seven others, are saved? What about Abraham? I mean, after the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, everyone spreads, God spreads everyone across the face of the earth, and it's Abram that God chooses, right? To show favoritism to, right? Why, why was David chosen to lead the nation Israel? I mean, it seems like you could say, yeah, well, the Israelites, Abram, Moses, some of these guys, they got special treatment. But that's not true. God didn't show favoritism. God showed favor. And there's a difference. In fact, what's amazing is when you look in the Bible and you read there, God freely, graciously gives his favor, his blessing upon individuals. There's nothing in them that merits that. There's no reason for God to say, oh, I got to pick him. Oh, I got to pick her. God does it freely because he's gracious. In fact, he shows favor. And when he shows favor, do you know why he shows favor? Oftentimes to bless others. I mean, you stop and think for a moment. Just stop and think about this. Why did God chose, choose Noah and show him favor? Was he just saving Noah and his seven children? Oh, no. He was doing far more than that. He was doing far more than that. You see... He was saving the seed that he had promised to Adam and Eve. He was preserving the line to bring that seed at the right time in order to save not just eight, but we'll find out in heaven how many. Thousands upon thousands is what Revelation tells us. God was saving me. God's blessing, God's favor wasn't favoritism for Noah. No, it was favor for the sake of others. I mean, when God chose Abram and blessed him. You remember what he told him? Hey, Abram, I'm going to make your name famous because I'm going to make my name famous. I'm going to bless you, and, and, and there's a seed that's going to come from you. And that seed is going to be a blessing to who? To the whole world. Father Abraham becomes the, the paradigm for how we should walk by faith. And anyone, everyone who will believe can be blessed, favored by God in that way that we can be saved. God wasn't being impartial. He, he, he wasn't uh, showing favoritism. He was granting favor. We all want God to be impartial. He wouldn't be worthy of worship if he wasn't. But it's about more than just being fair. You know, oftentimes those words are used interchangeably, especially in this culture with social justice, right? Things We want things fair, everyone treated equally, right? And yet impartiality, it, doesn't, it refers to the decisions someone is making, that, that they're made without any bias, without any prejudice. Impartiality means that, that you're not supporting one side over against another in an argument, right? It has the idea of being equitable, to being objective, unbiased. And what God's impartiality reminds us of today and tells us today is this. That's the attribute that ensures that when God acts, He acts in an unbiased manner. 
He acts in a way that he doesn't give preferential treatment to any person or any group at the expense of others. Jesus stressed this about God. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, there in Matthew chapter 5, as he was speaking, he says, you know, God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Over in Luke's gospel, in Luke 6.35, he says that God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. The essence of our God, whether it's Jesus or Moses or in Deuteronomy, when Moses recorded in the law that the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He can't be partial. You know why? His throne is a throne of righteousness. His reign, his rule is with the scepter of righteousness. He's a king of righteousness, right? That means he does the right thing. If he does the right thing, then he's never going to do the wrong thing. And he's never going to do something that is partial. That's reassuring to me as I walk through life to know God is not going to be partial to any. He's not going to show favoritism. He he is not an impartial judge. Everyone will stand before him someday and give an account. But unlike the justice you and I might see in this world, our God is impartial. You see, this is really a challenge right now, even in our culture today, with what's happening with all this stuff called social justice. It's not biblical justice, social justice. It's not the same thing. It's not even close. You know why? Check this out. Social justice cuts humanity with a plane, with a level this way. And what it does is it separates classes of people. It separates men from women. It it cuts and it separates ethnicities. You're white and you're some other ethnicity. Or it cuts and it says, well, you're heterosexual and your preference is other. And because of that, what happens is then it says that there's classes of people and, and, and that society has done certain individuals wrong. And, and because of your marginalization and, and, and especially your intersectionality, if you intersect a bunch of those planes, then you really have been experiencing injustice. That's not always the case. That's not biblical justice. Do you know how God cuts it? He doesn't cut it this way through classes of people. Justice from God cuts down from heaven through every human heart. And what it does is when it cuts through every human heart, it says this is right and this is wrong. This is good and this is evil. This is is wicked and this is righteous. That's how righteousness and a just impartial God judges. He judges this way through every human heart, not through classes of people, which is how the world wants us to look at things right now with those lenses. But our God is impartial. Our God does not show favoritism. And the word, the scripture is going to teach us that and demonstrate that in a myriad of ways how God is impartial today. And when we stop and take the other attributes that we've studied and we have this full understanding and a fuller understanding of the essence of God and who he is and what he's like, the God we worship, we want to come to that impartial God. We want to come to that impartial judge. And we want to recognize we throw ourselves before him and we surrender to him because we realize who he is and what he's like. I want you to stand with me in honor of the word of the Lord. I'm in chapter 2 of Romans and I'm going to start reading in verse 11 and go down through verse 16. And Paul is making an argument and I kind of hate that we have to jump right into the middle of it. But just for the sake of time, I just want to highlight this idea that, that Paul is giving us and God's word is speaking to us that he is an impartial God. Listen clearly right there underlined verse 11. For there is no partiality with God. 
It's the same thing Paul said to, or Peter said when he met Cornelius. And he stopped and realized it. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law unto themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Father, heaven... Please help us to realize there is a universal judgment that will take place. God, it can take place right now in our hearts today as we come before you. If we'll be honest with ourselves and honest with you and and let your word assess us. And that, Father, uh, we might yield to what it says of us. And that, Father, we might realize that you are impartial in your judgments and you're impartial in the offer that you extend. And God, may we experience that grace and mercy which are available only because of the blood that Jesus has spilt at Calvary. And Father, I pray today that though the world around us is full of, of preferential treatment and full of favoritism and, and full of, of injustice, God, may we experience today and know that you are impartial, impartial in all that you do. And we'll give you glory and honor, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen. Our God is an impartial God. Part it, Paul is making this argument from the second half of Romans chapter 1 all the way through Romans chapter 3. And what he's trying to establish is, listen, before you can experience the good news, you've got to understand the bad news. And the bad news is this, y'all, we're all sinners. Every single one of us. Everyone in this world. In fact, the light is shown into this world. Creation is speaking. And mankind is trying to suppress that and reject the creator. Instead, worships the created things. Rejecting the light, thinking that we're wise in our own eyes. What happens? Man becomes darkened in his understanding. Fools is what Paul would say. And the world rejecting that uh, truth of God embraces the lie and turns from the creator. But what about the self-righteous people? They don't appear to be like some of the things that are described, the abominable practices that are mentioned there in Romans chapter 1. They don't do those things. They don't live what would appear to be godless lives. They appear to be morally upright, good-standing citizens, you know. They put on a good show, right? They they, they appear to be upright. Some are self-righteous. They think they are upright. And Paul is speaking to them and he's saying, listen, be careful You don't realize that when you condemn them, you yourselves are are guilty of what you condemn them of. In fact, an argument's going to be made here as he walks down through the first half of this chapter, getting to this point where he's making the argument that, you know what? God is going to judge everyone. God will render what is right to everyone based on what they've done, the works that they've done. Whether it's a work of, of, of self and flesh and what you've done or even a work of faith. And God is going to judge everyone at some point. He's going to judge everything according to verse 2, according to truth, because he's a truthful God. And he's going to judge everything according to everyone's works, because as it says in verse 6, he will render to everyone according to his works. But when he gets down to verse 11, this would be a shock to the Jew, because it says there is no partiality with God. He's the same with the Jew and with the Greek. 
And yet the Jews going to say, wait a second, stop for a moment. How is that possible? That's not the case for us. God has chosen us. We're a blessed people in a particular way. And yet Paul is going to make the argument, no, God's judgment is based on his moral law. He's a righteous God. And those laws appeal, I mean, apply equally to everyone before his bar of justice. Why? Well, because you see, God is an impartial judge. He's a lawgiver. God has given the law, and his law is impartial. What his law says is this. If you commit the crime against the law, if you're guilty of not keeping the law, then there is a punishment that every sinner will experience, will have to pay. And it's this. The wages of sin is death. As many as sin without the law, they're going to perish without the law. The, the, the Gentile who doesn't have the Torah, doesn't have the Ten Commandments, that Gentile will be judged by the, the, the penalty that the law demands. So if they sin outside the law, the punishment they'll experience is what? Death. That's what they deserve. But also, those who sin under the law will suffer the penalty under the law. That means, listen, if it's the Jewish high priest, if he sins... Then, then he is deserving of death. If the cannibal who lives in a dense jungle forest is on an island and he doesn't have the law and he sins, what will he be deserving of? Death. Why? God doesn't show partiality to anybody. God doesn't show partiality to anyone. In fact, the reason is, is because what we're going to realize is this impartial judge has given that law to every one. He has shown the light of truth into every heart. Some suppress that truth. They reject it. That's what Paul's argument was in Romans chapter 1. Some reject it. Some were given more light. Like God's people. In fact, what's more bright, What's brighter? A candlelight or an air, uh, airport searchlight? Well, that's easy. A fifth grader can tell you that, right? The airport searchlight is much, much brighter. But, but here's the truth. Here's the question. They, that may be brighter... But which one is light? They both are light. They both have light. And the question isn't how much light do you have. The question is what have you done with the light that God has given to you? And that's what he's making this argument from. You see, because everyone has some light. Listen, the Jew would say, well, listen, we were given the law. That's right. And he says in verse 13, those who have given the law, it's not the hearers of the law that are just before God, but it's the doers of the law. And here's what the law says. Yes, you were given the law, but you who say, well, listen, we were given the law, we're a special people. We are God's people, and we are the seed of Abraham. Yeah, but here's the thing. That law that was given to you says that you're not blessed if you hear, merely hear the law, You're blessed if you do it. And if you do it, you have to do all of it. Because if you fail in one point, you're guilty of how much? All of it. So if you're going to go down that path and say we're a privileged people and God has shown partiality. He's given us this law. That law doesn't redeem you. You can't keep it. No man can keep it. That's Paul's argument he's going to make when he gets over to chapter 3. As he strings all these verses from the Old Testament. And he walks down and he shows the universality of, uh, of sin. And that there's none righteous. No, not one. From head to toe, we're corrupt. The poison of asps is on our lips. Our feet are quick to shed blood. We run to violence in ways. 
And in fact, what he's going to do, he's going to conclude that. He's going to say, you know what the law does? It shuts every mouth. No one can make an excuse. The law exposes every heart. And the amazing thing is, God has written the law, not just on tablets, but on every heart. You see, the impartial judge, and it's going to judge everyone with the law or without the law, is also an impartial giver of revelation. He's, he's, he doesn't, he's not partial in what he gets. He gives light to everyone. Do you realize the sun that's running its course to get today is speaking? The trees, nature, all around us is speaking. It's declaring that there is a God. It's a general revelation, Paul would say, that it reveals to us the divine Godhead and His eternal power so that we're without excuse. Remember, Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn it. It was already condemned, John chapter 3. He came into the world to save it because it stood condemned. The, the, the light is shining. The question is, what are you doing? Are you trying to suppress it or are you surrendering to it, yielding to it? God speaks and Paul's going to make this argument. Listen, you're not in a privileged position just because you have the law. God has been impartial. He has given that light to everyone. He has given everyone measure of light. The Jews had the law. It was written on tablets. It was given to them. But Gentiles, they weren't given the law on tablets. In fact, at Mount Sinai, you remember, Moses came down and he had the ten letters on the tablets. And that was given to God's people. And that was the law. And then they lived according to the law, according to Torah. And they were to conduct themselves that way and live that way. They must have been in a favored position. But Paul says, no, no, no. Gentiles, notice what it says here in verse 14. When Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law, these, though they don't have the law, are a law unto themselves. That doesn't mean they get to define their own law. What it means is, what he's saying is, listen, God wrote the law chiseled it on those tablets, but he's also written it on the conscience of man. And the conscience of man, when individuals in this world instinctively do the things of the law, what they demonstrate is there, the law is there. In fact, when you travel the world, isn't it fascinating? When you travel all around the world, what you realize is that those Ten Commandments are pretty much prosecuted anywhere you go. You know, it's not a good thing to steal. It's not a good thing to lie. It's definitely not a good thing to kill. Amen? It's not a good thing to do those evil and vile things. And yet the amazing thing is someone would say, well, well, then how did they get that law? Did we just think it up? I mean, did reason, man, just become enlightened and go, you know, we need these laws and this would be a good way to live. No, it's written there by the Creator. It's written on the conscience of man. And when these individuals instinctively, the, these Gentiles instinctively do the things of the law, there's an inner sense of what's right and what is wrong. Wherever you go, you, you realize it's called your conscience. Now, a lot of people are searing it today. In fact, they're searing it in the hearts and minds of kids today when they try to, listen, try to blur the distinctions in how they're even made, right? Male and female. You blur that distinction. Why listen to the lawgiver when you reject how the Creator made us? That's why this is such a great threat to our culture today. And the church needs to wake up and push back and speak against that. Because what you're doing is warping the minds of the children at a very young age. How will they make sense of what is right and wrong when they don't even understand and they can't even make sense now of how they've been made fearfully and wonderfully by God? But wherever you go, there is a sense that you know what? 
There's such a thing as sin doing wrong. In fact, even pagan worshipers, what do they do? They realize that and they fear judgment whether they worship the one true God or not. And what do they do? They seek to offer some sacrifice because we've got to, we've got to atone. We've, we've got to escape the wrath of, of this God, right? Because we've done wrong and we realize it and they try to appease God. They're demonstrating what, what Immanuel Kant would say is, is the categorical imperative. There's an oughtness within all of us that we realize we ought to do certain things and we ought not to do other things. Why? Because the impartial God has chiseled that law. He's written that law on the conscience of all of mankind. I mean, you stop and think about it. I mean, if you need empirical evidence, go work in the nursery. Children need to be taught how to do good. Because they instinctively know how to do bad. Amen? And if you haven't had kids yet, just wait. Amen? Even when moral values vary from culture to culture, you don't, you don't find a primitive society where there's not some moral sense of right and wrong. And who established that? The Creator who made us all. Listen, this isn't culturally derived or defined. It's defined by God. Now, our culture right now wants it to be culturally defined in ways that is light, right for the culture. But that's not what God did. He wrote his law on tablets and on the conscience of mankind. And what Paul says is, listen, you're not privileged just because you've had that. The Gentiles have it also. It's written, as it says in verse 15, they show the work of the law is written in their hearts. Their conscience bears witness, and between them, their thoughts either accuse or excuse them. You see, God is an impartial judge. He's not left anyone without the law. When God renders judgment, everyone will be judged by the law that's been given. And that truth is the light that's come to them, whether they accept it or they reject it. Everyone in this room, listen. One day, we're going to stand before God and give an account. Now, we're going to give an account. There's two judgment seats. You can choose which one you want to go to. There's one that if you go to that judgment seat, it's over in the book of Revelation, everyone who goes there, the rich, the poor, male and females, people from all ethnicities will be there. And they are those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. They are those who rejected the light that God gave them. And they will be there, and, and, and they will not have... In fact, they will not have a case to make with God. There's another judgment seat, the Bema seat of Christ, where those believers, those individuals who have bent the knee and say, you know what, here's the judgment. I'm a sinner. I'm exposed. The law has exposed me. And I realize I need a Savior because I can't save myself. And I want to look to that one that offered himself for me. In fact, the amazing thing is, that offer, God is impartial in giving that offer of redemption. Where individuals can place their faith and trust in Christ. That's Paul's whole argument. He starts in Romans chapter 1. Do you realize the gospel is the power of God for salvation? The praise team just sang about it. Praise the Lord. The gospel can put us on some solid rock. Amen. It can pull us up out of some miry clay and set our feet on solid rock. And radically change your life. And you know who that gospel's for? I love this word. Everyone. Everyone who believes, everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. Everyone, whosoever will call the name of the Lord, can be saved. That sounds pretty impartial to me. It sounds like, listen, light is given, you respond to the light that God gives. 
Now, what we also know is you need the work of the Spirit of God in your life to open your eyes and help you realize. I mean, that's something you understand later as you grow in your maturity and your faith. But what we realize is the impartial God is speaking and working and inviting men to come to Him and experience it. Now, here's the amazing thing. How would I, why would I realize that? Why would I not acknowledge? Why don't I acknowledge that I, I, I need to come to Him? We see this judge that we come to, what we do now is what we realize is, you know what? Um, this judge knows all the facts in the courtroom. You know why? Because he's omniscient. That means he knows what? All things. He, he doesn't, this is the amazing thing. He doesn't even need to call witnesses. Well, what did you see in this case? Well, what did you see in this case? You know why? Because he's omnipresent. He's already seen it all. Nothing's hidden from him. And he's not only, listen to this, he's not only impartial in this way because he knows all the facts, he knows all, he knows the motives because he sees right through, right? Where, where he sees right into our hearts, he knows that. Jesus gave that example as he was just sitting there and listening and, and, and doing his miraculous deeds and, 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 and he knew what they were even thinking in their heads. Pretty amazing. But stop and think about this. You can't bribe this judge. You know why? Because he owns it all anyways. It's all his. Wow, what an amazing God. Now, here's the awesome thing. You come before his court of justice, and here's the amazing thing. At his bar of justice, no one can stand. None of us. No one has a standing before him. You know why? Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he is impartial in his judgment. That's what the argument is over in Romans chapter 3. God cannot wink at sin. He can't let someone go free. Somebody has to pay the penalty. And that's why Jesus died. That's why Jesus died as the substitute. So that God can be both just and justifier. In other words, when I bend the knee and I say, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. You require perfection and I don't have it. But I see this one who died for me. I see this one who said, if I will repent and place my faith and trust in his sacrifice, I can be saved. You see, at the cross, when Jesus died, he cried out in the Greek, it says, tetelestai. You know what that means? Paid in full, forever. Well, that's good to know. You know, God's impartial in that sacrifice that he offers. That sacrifice is sufficient for everyone. There's enough grace and mercy right there in that sacrifice for this whole world. Amen. That penalty was paid. On Calvary. Now the amazing thing is that his sacrifice pays the penalty for my sin. But I still need righteousness credited to my account. And what I couldn't do living in the flesh in the years that God has written in the book that I'm living out right now, because I couldn't keep the law and establish a perfect righteous a perfect righteousness, Jesus did. He accomplished in his 33 years of walking on this earth. So that, as Paul says in, into the letter into the Corinthians, is listen, is that, you know what? An exchange can take place. Christ can take my unrighteousness and give me his righteousness. And the amazing thing is, God's impartial even in that given. It's not just for the Jews. It's not just for a, the males. It, it's not just for a certain age group. It's for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Pretty amazing. And our God is impartial in that. And that's healthy to understand for you and for me because we see a world all around us that plays favorites and, and, and we don't like when, when that happens and sometimes we do that and that's not a good representation of, of our Father in heaven who is impartial. He's no respecter of persons. And here's the amazing thing. Paul starts this whole argument. He says, don't you just realize this? That God right now is being 
patient to you? Don't you realize that, that God is reaching to you with goodness because he's impartial? The riches of his goodness are for all, Psalm 145, 9. He, he's reaching to you with goodness. He's forbearing, as we've learned. He's very patient, holding back, long-suffering, not bringing the hammer of judgment against uh, the sinners in this world. And as he does that, why does he do that? So that we'll repent, so that we'll turn from sin and turn to him. And the invitation is there to any and all who will come to him. It's not earned. It's not deserved. God shows favor in this way. It's not favoritism. Here's the favor. Everybody who comes to him must believe that he is. And he rewards those who seek him. And the reward is this. Eternal life. If you'll put your faith and trust in him. I'm grateful that he gave Father Abraham favor. You know why? Because he made his name famous. So that he could make his name famous. How? In sending the seed, Jesus, to die for you and for me. I'm glad he favored Noah. He didn't show him favoritism, but he kept his promise. He kept the seed alive so that the Messiah could come for you and for me. I, I'm glad not just the son of David, or I'm sorry, David the king was chosen because he was just the type ultimately of the son of David that would come, a picture for us who would be a righteous king. And he reigns on his throne. And one day, he, that judge, will judge everything impartially. But the invitation today is to judge yourself and say, I need a savior. I can't save myself. I see and believe Jesus died for me, and I want to put my trust in him. And the Bible says that when you do that, you experience the grace and mercy of God. 